Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Cleared for Takeoff. I'm your host Gavin Rice and I want to share what I've learned in aviation both on the job, off the job, and what I've encountered everywhere in between. I apologize in advance for some background noise and probably slightly less quality audio than normal. I'm actually recording this episode in New York's Kennedy Airport. I had a very busy weekend and am, uh, as of this recording, on my way to a vacation. Uh, my girlfriend's family is, is down in the Cayman Islands and so I'm, I'm headed down to join them. And I, I had no idea when I was going to record this episode in time for the usual Friday release. So I had a little time in between flights, so here we are in the terminal getting it done. So anyway, check rides. Ah, yes, it's, it's probably the, the biggest fear we pilots have. And it's essentially the, the driving test, so to speak, but there's more than just one. You know, if you're getting your driver's license, you only have that one driving test and then you're all set to drive until you die. Um, and, and kind of a side note, I mean, isn't that kind of wild to think about that, that you never have any follow-up training uh, to drive a car uh, in the future. Uh, I'm sure many of you have driven on, on uh, the danger zone of the East Coast that is Interstate 95, and, and you could probably agree with me that some people just shouldn't drive or, or could at least use some safety training, don't you think? But anyway, to contrast with, with, uh, with driving to flying, there are multiple check rides. And even if you only want to be a private pilot who just flies for fun and, and doesn't get paid, you still have that dreaded check ride. And then after that, even then, uh, yeah, you're a private pilot at that point, but every two years you have to do a flight review with an instructor to ensure that you have the, the flight proficiency and are, and are keeping up to date on your knowledge. Uh, and then if you want to be an airline pilot, well, check rides just become normalized because you'll have recurrent training every year once you are in the airlines. But while you go through primary flight training, there are a lot of these end of course examinations and they can be pretty nerve wracking. And I mean, at a minimum prior to airline training, you'll have at least four check rides and that would be your private, your instrument, your commercial and your multi. And there'd be another one if you became a flight instructor and yet another one if you became an instrument instructor and then yet another one if you became multi a multi-engine instructor. So that's potentially seven check rides right there. That's a lot of check rides. And the pressure to do well in a check ride is, is a very strange feeling because you, you want to do well so that, I mean, you, you obviously want to pass, right? So you're going to try and do the best you can. And so each of us deal with that test anxiety differently. And, and some of us just don't have any of that anxiety at all. I'd say I, I kind of fit somewhere in the lower end uh, of having checkride anxiety, but there's still a lot of those nerves and, and I've had them on every single checkride. And, and you, you'll study everything you need to know in preparation you know you'll, you'll you'll practice maneuvers over and over and over again and and then your instructor will ultimately sign you off and tell you that you're all set you've got it you know what it takes to to pass this check ride but it, it doesn't matter how hard you study and how well you prepare because those new those nerves will still be there and like i said you'll have at least four check rides just to get through your primary flight training and, and in my case, it's a little different, uh, where at a flight school with self-examining authority, these check rides are, are split up. 
usually under a, a Part 61 training environment, you'll go with a, a DE, which is a, a designated examiner, and you'll do both the oral and uh, the, the oral portion of the checkride, and then you'll fly after, and that's all part of the one checkride. Um, and, and you always start with the oral just to make sure your knowledge is on, on par so that uh, if you do well in the oral, then, then you move on to the flight. And then if you pass the flight, well then congratulations, you passed and you got your new rating or, or your certification. But in a part 141 school with a, a, a rigorous curriculum, which um, you know is, is exactly the, the type of flight school I went to, many like the one that I went to, it, they'll have uh, what's called self-examining authority. And so this means that they will split the check rides into an oral, a flight, and then uh, for the instrument ratings, you also have simulators as well. So then <laughs> let's try and count this. So my private pilot was, was two check rides. One was for the oral and one was for the flight. Again, those were two separately scheduled events. And then instrument was three because we had, there was an oral, a simulator session and a flight. And commercial was technically also three as well in terms of, of having check ride preparation. We had two in-house check rides that was an oral and a flight and then one with a DE a, a designated examiner and and that one was uh, combined you know an oral and flight in one so I'll count that as one uh, multi-engine was another two again uh, an oral and a flight and then when I went for my flight instructor rating that was another two check rides the oral and the flight and then the instrument instructor rating was again uh, three just like the original uh, the initial instrument which was uh, again an oral a simulator and a flight session so if, if I did my math correctly, that's, that's technically 15 check rides that I had back in my primary flight training, which it, it's a lot. I mean, that, that is a lot of pressure on to, to get those done. Uh, and so you might be wondering, you know, have I passed all my check rides on the first try? Well, yes and no. Uh, and how is that possible? <laughs> it's either yes or no. Uh, so with all the check rides at my flight school, uh, again, with that self-examining authority, any failure would count as, as an official failure. You, you could fail the oral uh, and or you could fail the flight, and that would count as a certifying uh, check ride failure per, per the FAA, per the Federal Aviation Administration. Um, but there is one exception. Uh, at, uh, at the particular flight school I went to at Embry-Riddle, and that is the, the single engine commercial rating. And the reason for that is, is in order to allow the, the school, um, for, the, for the curriculum, for the FAA and, and the flight school to, to come to an agreement on a curriculum, our curriculum allowed us to get our commercial certificate in less than 250 hours. And so the, the caveat to that is the FAA said, okay, well, if you're going to do less than 250 hours, we're going to need to certify those check rides. So you will not have self-examining authority. So uh, that's the only, I guess you could say it's a bit of a drawback because you're, you're no longer dealing with, um, you know, in-house check rides. It's, it's now you have to bring in a designated examiner. Um, but that's, that's just one of the, again, like I said, one of the caveats to, to doing this kind of program where everything's in-house except for, for the commercial one. So the one check ride I did technically fail was the in-house commercial flight. But again, since that course did not have self-examining authority, that check ride was, was kind of just considered a sign-off to go on to the actual check ride with the DE, that designated examiner. So although it's, 
it's on my belt uh, that I, I count this as a failure. It's it's not technically an officially uh, it's not an official failure on my flight records. Um, and you might be wondering then, you know, was this the toughest checkride I've ever had? Uh, nope, <laughs> that in-house that I failed was not the toughest checkride I had. In fact, this the, this particular checkride wasn't too bad, but my nerves did get the better of me on the power off 180 maneuver. Uh, and this is for most uh, commercial pilot applicants, probably the hardest maneuver. And, and I definitely agree with that. It, it, the, the power of an 80 maneuver is, it's all about proper energy management, which is, is much like many, and, and if not all, the commercial maneuvers where it's all about energy management. Um, and, and it's where you're in the traffic pattern uh, as if you're, you're gonna land uh, from an, a normal traffic pattern. And you come up a beam so, so you're on the downwind leg, which means uh, you're opposite of your landing direction. And you come a beam to your chosen landing point, uh, like maybe top of the runway numbers or, or the first runway stripe or something like that. And once you're a beam that chosen landing point, you bring the power all the way back to completely idle. And then you as the pilot, you're in charge of managing your airspeed and altitude to safely and effectively place the plane on that originally chosen point or no further than 200 feet beyond that. And so I, I remember that leading up to this check ride, I, I, was, I always had the tendency to turn in towards the field a little too soon, which meant that I was too high. And so in order to lose altitude, the one maneuver you can do is called the side slip. Uh, which for lack of a better term, it, it just means you, you kind of start flying the plane a little bit sideways in order to create a ton of drag, which uh, with an increase in drag will allow you to drop the plane quicker, uh, get a, a quicker vertical descent rate. But in this particular check ride, it was a little bit windy out and I, I did not account for that wind. And so I ended up being short. And although I, I might have made the pavement. It was cutting it too close for me, uh, too close for comfort, coming that close to touching down on the grass prior to the pavement. So that, that wasn't really quite safe. Um, and so, you know, I, I might have been able to, to float it in ground effect, but I, I don't think I would have even made the point, let alone the pavement. So I, I elected to do the safe thing, and that was to go around. Uh, but that meant that I failed the maneuver and, and thus failed the check ride. And that kind of got in my head a little bit, but I, I still opted to continue the flight. I wanted to try and get through all the rest of the maneuvers, and I, I did get through all of them except one, which was the, the simulated engine failure or the, or the, uh, the emergency approach to land, the, the engine failure to, to a, simulate, simulating to a landing. And I remember I was, I was coming in a little too high on this one, which was, you know, I, I think coming off of that power off 180 where I was coming in too low you know, was in my mind, okay, you know, make sure you, you come in with more altitude. And, and then on that next maneuver, I, I came in too high. So it's kind of interesting how I, I overcorrected, even though it was a, a separate maneuver, the same mentality was going through my mind of, of altitude management. And so I came in too high and, and I failed that maneuver too. But I mean, at the end of it, it's, it's a learning experience. You know, in the debrief, the examiner told me, hey, you know, you, uh, it started off well, but you're coming in high, and yeah, probably would have survived, but in that situation, the field you picked, based on how high you came in, we probably would have hit the trees on the other end, and, and that's, you know, if it was a real-life engine failure, so that's, you know, oops, <laughs> not exactly a, a pass, so he couldn't pass me on that maneuver. 
Um, so I, although I was a little bit bummed, I, I, I had to remember that, you know, mistakes happen and that I can just go back and try again. And, and better yet, I'm, I'm, I only have to do those two maneuvers, the power of 180 and the simulated engine failure. Uh, I just will have to go back and do those two because everything else was satisfactory. Uh, but those are the only two I have to do. I don't have to, to do the entire check right over. And so after just one, I remember I did one quick refresher flight with my instructor, and then I rechecked for the power off 180 and the emergency approach to land, and I passed. And I was now ready for that official certifying check ride with the DE, a designated examiner. And this, this flight with the DE, that was the toughest check ride I've ever had to date, and that includes airline training too. So it was the beginning of December, back in uh, 2018 and it was it was not a great flying day at all I, I remember most of the other flights were getting canceled for low clouds and, and high winds it was just kind of a terrible day uh, to, to be up in the air and I, I remember the check ride was set to start I think at 8 a.m. and that was going to be the the first oral portion and the examiner had texted me I wonder if he had texted me that morning. I think he had texted me at 6 a.m. Uh, and I, I was I was awake because I was kind of dreading what was to come. Um, and he asked me if I, if I could show up a few minutes early so that so that we could get rolling a bit earlier to, to beat out some more severe weather that was forecasted to come in. And of course, I, I obliged and, and I think we got started around 7.30 a.m. I remember that the the oral portion of the checkguard was actually, it was pretty easy. Uh, the, the examiner was uh, assessing my flight planning, the knowledge of aircraft systems. Uh, we wanted to make sure I knew what my commercial pilot privileges were and, and he had me do a weight and balance scenario and, and a couple other things. Um, and a, a good portion of that time uh, in the beginning was, was really spent preparing paperwork. So I, I think the entire oral portion of that checkguard was probably just under an hour. It did not take long at all. And once that was over, he told me to go outside and, and get the plane ready and that he'd meet me out there in about 15 minutes. And for the flight, it actually used a scenario from the oral portion having to do with the weight and balance problem that, that I had to bring with me. Uh, and we'd, we'd be also be using it for the flight as well. And it was essentially just showing my, my ability to plan uh, fuel burn and, and performance of the aircraft given the weight that, and, and balance that was on board the aircraft per that that flight plan that he had uh, or, or the weight and balance program uh, problem that he had given me the night before so that I could prepare for it um, so it was it was supposed to be gosh I think it was supposed to be like three adults a hundred pounds of luggage the maximum allowable fuel and a destination of Fort Myers <laughs> which if you can picture the state of Florida going from Daytona Beach to Fort Myers in a Cessna 172 with three adults 100 pounds of baggage I mean <laughs> because of that weight you can maybe take 25 gallons which is really stretching it trying to get all the way to the opposite side of the state and because the tanks the, the fuel tanks could normally hold 53 gallons but because of the the weight restriction that was not going to work and so the, I remember the flight planning was it was frustrating because it was gonna barely leave me with the legal requirement of 30 minutes of remaining fuel upon reaching the destination and I, I knew this was going to get interesting once we started the flying portion of the check ride and once we did get up to altitude I, I started making my way towards the first fix uh, on that that planned uh, route 
and right away the examiner started hammering with hammering me with all kinds of fuel calculations uh, to figure out and, and asking me what the heck was I thinking you know that we would be able to make it at this slower engine speed you know are we ever going to get there uh, and I had selected a slower engine speed because we needed to conserve fuel but with that slower speed we were crawling across the ground because it was just a hefty headwind and it just it clearly it wasn't it wasn't going to work um, and I, I but I, I still had informed them that it was necessary to conserve fuel but again those winds had picked up and it looked like this journey was not going to be possible without a fuel stop which by the way with with how that weight and balance problem worked out how it was originally given it was practically impossible to do this without a fuel stop especially given the winds i think if the winds were dead calm and or there was a tailwind that maybe this would be doable given that scenario but I think, you know, in, in a real life scenario, if I was planning that flight, I would have I would have just planned for a fuel stop because it's no big deal. Why stretch it and potentially be unsafe when you can just take an extra 30 to 40 minutes out of your day to just stop and, and fuel up some more. So, yeah, it was the scenario he gave me and, and the instructions were you got to work this out without a fuel stop. So that's what I had to do. But anyway, after he chewed me out a little bit about my, my poor fuel planning, um, he then turned both my PFD, the PFD is the, the primary flight display, and the MFD, the multifunction display, he turned those two displays off. And what this meant is that the only instruments I had left were a standby attitude indicator, an altimeter, an airspeed indicator, and, and the compass. It was that and my eyes. It was, the, was my last resort to just look outside and find reference points along the ground and navigate. And this is what's called pilotage. Uh, navigating by looking outside and, and comparing the outside you know, roads and trees and terrain and cities and things like that to compare it to my charts and to get an idea of, uh, of where I'm going. But luckily, thanks to my my pre-flight planning you know, the, the night before when I was creating the the route I had studied Google Maps you know, not not just looking at the sectional chart the VFR chart that shows us the airspace but I also actually studied Google Maps to see what it would look like when I'm flying over because I had an idea that it was possible this guy was gonna fail my my moving map display and my my heading indicator and that kind of thing so it would it would mean that in order to boost my situational awareness I'm gonna to want to study the route a little bit and actually look at what the surface was supposed to look like and so I, I, I did just that I, I studied Google Maps to get an idea of, of what the roads were like and uh, I say terrain but there's not much terrain out there in Florida but but definitely the roads uh, and, and some of the lakes and, and cities around that area and, and this was so key uh, especially key because the route that uh, this route was taking us was sandwiching between Orlando's Class B airspace, which he instructed me we're not going to go through, because you could go through it if you get a clearance from air traffic control, but he said we're not going to go through that. And then there was a, a restricted military airspace just to the north. So I, I think it was about a, a two-mile wide gap to thread the needle through. And two miles might seem like a lot when you're down on the surface, but when you're up in a plane, two miles is a pretty narrow gap to be shooting through and that's it's very hard especially if you're in four or five thousand feet and you're having to see some references on the ground and figure out 
you know, where do I need to be to avoid those airspaces? It's, it's a little bit challenging. Uh, but luckily, I remember uh, in, in studying the map and overlaying it with the chart that if I stayed just a half a mile north of this particular road, which uh, I think it was Florida Route 44, that I was able to continue the flight and, and continue as if we're headed towards Fort Myers and then make my way navigating using this road for a good, a good portion of, of that section of the flight anyway um, in order to avoid the airspaces. So again, because I, I studied it using Google Maps, it was not too bad of a situation given that I had lost my, my two flight displays, primary and multifunction. So I'm losing, I lost my moving map, I lost my, my heading indicator, and a lot of things that really help with your situational awareness were completely gone. And so thankfully I, I did study the maps. Shortly after he realized that I was, I was doing pretty well with navigating, he then said, there's some bad weather ahead. Uh, he was essentially giving me a scenario, there's bad weather ahead and you need to divert. And, and funny enough, the visibility ahead was getting worse. So the scenario he gave was actually pretty much real life. It was starting to look kind of crappy out, out the direction we were going. Uh, and so I, I knew that if, um, you know, at that point we were flying southwest and I knew that to the north of me, so to the right side of me, there was Leesburg area, so there's an airport there. So I told him, yeah, I'd, I'd turn right, make, a, make, uh, make my way towards, towards Leesburg. And he gave me another scenario of, nope, they, they have an aircraft disabled on the runway at Leesburg, so where are you going to go now? And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll turn around and I'll head towards Deland, which is pretty much just a, a 180 turn back to the northeast uh, behind me. And he said, okay, go ahead and do that. And so that's what I did. I, I turned around and I had to, again, retrace my steps and follow that road to reshoot the gap and make sure I wasn't gonna bust any airspace because my, my screens were still off at this point. And I, so I, with those screens off, I, I had nothing to work with other than those outside references to, to navigate towards the land. And I remember the route, that route 44 kind of comes into uh, I guess it is the, the downtown Deland area, and the airport is, is on the eastern side of the town, so it's not right downtown there. And it's it gets a little confusing with where that road was going to lead, and I couldn't remember exactly if it was slightly north or slightly south, so it was a little bit hard to see, particularly because it was uh, the visibility was, was pretty poor at that point. And so if it was a crystal clear day, I probably would have seen the airport five to ten miles prior to that point. But it was, it was a little tricky to, to find the airport. Uh, but I finally did. You know, I, I tuned into the automated weather. I started listening to traffic uh, to see if any was in the pattern. And then I, I determined based on the winds, and I think there was one aircraft in the pattern, uh, that runway 1-2 was the, the proper choice for landing. And so based on where I was coming from, from the southwest of the field, I, I knew I, that I needed somehow to get myself entered on a, to a 45 degree entry to the left downwind for runway 12. And, and for, for my listeners who are thinking, what the heck is he talking about? Um, it's, it's essentially, again, what I've kind of talked about it in, in this episode earlier and then in previous episodes, the downwind is, is the opposite direction you're gonna land uh, so you're, you're getting yourself lined up. You're, you're a thousand feet above the field and you're getting yourself lined up in the opposite direction. You're flying parallel to your landing direction. So you're going downwind, then you turn to a base, and then you turn to a final. So it's just a big rectangular uh, box that you're drawing in the sky to come into land. And so when you're joining that downwind, it's kind of like merging onto a highway. 
where you need to kind of join in with traffic and you need to either speed up and get in front of someone or, or slow down and, and get behind them. Now we're not usually actually speeding up or slowing down, it's more of, of spacing it out and timing that turn inbound, but you're gonna join that downwind on a 45 degree angle, I guess kind of similar to how a, a merge would initially start be pointing, you know, would be pointing at the interstate and then it would, you'd slowly turn your way in and then, and then you'd shift over. So it's kind of, kind of just like that, where you're, you're joining into the highway, so to speak. And so I, I knew that, okay, th this, that's where I needed to go. I, I needed to get myself squared away to enter because it, entering on that 45 to the left down one is, is the recommended way that you need to do it. And, it. and it's what the Czech Airman would be expecting me to do. And so I had this all set up and all squared away in my head. And once the field fully came into view, I, I thought I had it. I was like, all right, I'm gonna go this direction to, to get all squared away. But then I don't know what happened. I had this major brain fart go on because as I got closer, I all of a sudden just wasn't sure of myself. I was, I was second guessing what I was thinking. And I mean, I was thinking to myself, was this going to be left or right down one? And, and is that the correct runway am I looking at? I was, I don't know what was going on with my mind, but I was getting all confused. And, and so and part, part of this had to do with, again, the fact that my primary and, and secondary flight displays were, were blacked out, simulated as failed. So those are really great for, for enhancing situational awareness. But since I didn't have those, well, it was very tricky to, to get my bearings. And so instead of just blindly going into it and, and potentially doing something unsafe, I, I decided to do the safe thing. And that was to stay higher than the pattern altitude and then circle the airport to, to help get my bearings. I mean, I can kind of equate this to maybe, you know, my generation and and everyone younger, we're all used to, and, and even the older generations now, everyone's used to using a GPS on your phone to, to navigate places now. Uh, but imagine you're so used to that and all of a sudden now you have to go by memory of the map. And so that's kind of what this was, is, is based on my memory of the airspace and my orientation, it, you know, it, you can get turned around pretty easily. It was very disorienting. So. It's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, and so I, I thought, okay, flying around the airport was the right call. It, it, it's what's really important is it's the safest thing to do. Uh, and there's, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. If you're taking more time to be safe, that's fine. But what I, I did not expect was the examiner's lack of patience. Uh, and, and in order to keep this episode PG, I won't repeat verbatim what he said but it was something along the lines of are we done screwing around here so we can land we need to get on the ground i mean i was i was taken aback uh but i i also knew that this might be a, a distraction ploy to to get me to mess up and perhaps he was testing my ability to perform under pressure but still yikes i mean it was it was just it, it added to the already immense pressure i was already under but I, I finally got myself all squared away, and, and after circling a little more uh, and, and seeing his frustration, I, I, I entered that 45 to the down correctly. I was making all my radio calls, and, and I got into the pattern. And I, he had me do one normal landing to get a feel for the winds because they were they were pretty gusty. I remember I remember they were they were steady at 15 to 20 knots, and then gusting over 25 knots at times. And and this is quite a lot for a little Cessna. And, and they weren't perfectly down the runway either. There was definitely some crosswind component in there too. So it was, it was not a day that I would choose to go flying by any means for fun. It was, it was, 
it was the, the the whole challenging side of it was far outweighing the fun side of it. That <laughs> much I can say. Uh, and so after the first landing, we we did I think uh, again we did a, a normal landing, and then for the first takeoff, we did a, a short field takeoff, and then a short field landing. I think, and those were both satisfactory. Uh, and then. During this time, I, I was making my normal radio calls, you know, announcing to land traffic, Skyhawk, whatever the call sign was, depart in runway one, two, left traffic. You know, I was making all my normal call sign uh, or, or uh, traffic calls because at this particular airport, it's, it's uncontrolled, which means that each aircraft has to communicate with each other in order to, to essentially separate each other to, to make sure everyone's at a, a safe enough distance. And so I was making all that radio, all, all those radio calls to, to help uh, distance myself from, I think there was only one other aircraft in the pattern. So I was making those calls, or at least I thought I was making those calls. <laughs> it turns out I was, I was listening to the frequency. I was hearing the other guy making his radio calls, but for whatever reason, I was transmitting on some other random frequency. And so nobody was hearing me talk in the pattern at the land. Uh, and I didn't notice this and neither did the examiner but what did happen is that another aircraft actually called us out they said hey are you are you guys gonna make some radio calls you know we we're, we're hearing you or we're not hearing you and, and you're coming in behind us and after us and we're, we want what's going on here and so I instinctively was like yeah yeah I'm on the radio right radio check one two three you know can you hear me no response and so I thought to myself, what the heck, do we have a, some kind of transmitter failure? We're, we're clearly listening, we're, we're able to hear him. And I, I didn't look at my audio panel, but the examiner looked at the audio panel and then I was watching him look at the audio panel and, and he noticed my mistake and then I saw it too. Um, that I had, I had selected um, that I was, I was listening to instead of transmitting on that, on that certain frequency. And so he, he made the correction and then he hops on the frequency and he says on the radio so that this other guy can hear and whoever else was listening to the Deland frequency he said this on the radio oh yeah sorry we're, we're here we hear you uh i've got a check right here and my, my applicant had the wrong frequency tuned in <laughs> so yeah the examiner yeah caught my mistake but then proceeded to call me out on the radio and so at this point, I was, I was not only feeling a little bit dumb about the frequency mess up, but I was also quite embarrassed when he called me out like that. Because uh, I, I don't think I've ever made that kind of mistake. I've usually been uh, very careful about radio frequency selections. And, you know, with the pressure, it, it's just you can make little mistakes. But gosh, talk about an embarrassing moment for him to call me out on the radio like that. And again, I, I think it might have been another attempt to shake me up perhaps, but either way, I, I stuck with a hard shell and, and I kept with it and, and the rest of the maneuvers were fine. I mean, I remember those winds were hefty and um, although, you know, you need to make, you need to meet the certification standards for each, each landing maneuver, there was certainly some flexibility due to those conditions. Uh, and, and I remember, you know, going back from the, the in-house check ride, the power off 180 and the uh, emergency approach to land, those that I had failed in the, the in-house uh, check ride, I, I did them pretty well in, in this DE check ride. And that's again where it counts. So even with the winds, 
the examiner gave me a little more leeway um, because those winds were so strong. And it'd be impossible for someone, even with his skill and practice and practice, that it'd be virtually impossible to put the plane down and do it exactly to the airman certification standards of the on the dot plus 200 feet. So it would have been impossible. So he gave me some leeway there, but, but uh, he said, yep, good job on that maneuver, good job on that maneuver, and we, and we continued on. Uh, and once those landings were done, we then we took off, we left to land, and we, uh, we went up, I think we went up north a little bit, and we did a couple more maneuvers, got through them really quickly. And I remember at this point, the, the clouds were closing in on us. Uh, the weather was really starting to deteriorate, and there, there really wasn't much room to perform some of that upper air work. And at one point, he took the controls from me, which normally if you have an instructor or an examiner take the controls, that's kind of like, a, oh crap, I failed because the Czech airman took the controls. It's, it's kind of one of those moments. Uh, but I, I think he genuinely just wanted to fly a little bit. Uh, and then, so he, he took over, he uh, changed our heading, and then he handed back the controls. He said, all right, there's your point. He pointed out uh, some building we could see in the distance, I guess. And he said, all right, there's your heading, do some steep turns. And at this point, we're we're, like, we're barely maintaining visual um, distance, proper distance from the clouds. Uh, there's quite a few clouds all around us. And I said, dude, I asked him, do we have enough room with, with that cloud right there and that cloud over there? He said, yeah, just get it done. And he kind of gave me this impatient reply. Uh, so I did it. I, I, it was a good maneuver, uh, this steep turn maneuver. But I do remember that halfway through the first turn, we came within feet of just popping right into a cloud. And it, to mind you, the, the visual flight rules, the, the weather minimums is that you're supposed to be at least 2,000 feet horizontally away from clouds. But there just wasn't enough room for that. But we wanted to get the maneuvers done, and so we got them done. And um, I think after that, we did a, an emergency descent, which got us down to altitude below that cloud deck. And we were just about a thousand feet above the ground, and then uh, kind of same thing as before. I think he took the flight controls. He said, "Okay, there's your pylon on the right. There's your pylon on the left. Here's your 45 entry. Eights on pylons. Go. Your flight controls." And uh, I mean, normally the the check ride, you'll have to set up this maneuver. This maneuver called eights on pylons. It's it's probably the second most difficult commercial maneuver after the power off 80. Uh, but he kind of, I, I felt a little cheated in a way that he, he kind of set it up for me. Because usually, like I said, usually the applicant needs to set up, figure out the winds. But he, he clearly just wanted to get over with because, again, this weather was, was coming in. So I got that maneuver done, and then we, we started heading back uh, towards Daytona. And I, I think I needed to complete one last performance landing, and that was the soft field landing. Uh, and then that was it. That completed the check ride. And I remember doing that soft field landing and touching down and, and exiting the runway and, and feeling a sense of relief because the flight was over, but there was no satisfaction that the flight was over. It was kind of a just, uh, I'm kind of glad to be on the ground right now because the weather was not so good and I'm exhausted because that was a lot of strain mentally to get through all that and I just I just wanted to be, to be done. Um, and I remember when I did get off the runway, the examiner was silent. You know, he didn't say anything. Uh, I think, I think he had said, "I guess we we're on a 10-mile final or something." He said, "Yeah, all right, show me the soft field landing," and that was the last thing he said. And he was just completely silent on the taxi all the way back to the ramp. I remember it just felt like such a long way. 
to get back to the ramp because it was just silent and I just had this feeling, this awful feeling that I didn't do well, that I failed. And I remember we, we made the left turn to, to get onto the ramp and the ramp was full because, uh, again, people were canceling. So there were no planes headed out. We were probably the only plane that was out there. And it wasn't quite raining at this point, but those skies were dark and looming and it was, it was very gusty and it looked like it was about to pour. And so we're, we're inching our way down the ramp because you have to taxi pretty, pretty slowly on, on this, uh, the ramp at Riddle because it's, uh, these planes are parked so close in order to fit all the 85 planes they have there. Uh, you gotta, you gotta take some time squeaking in between them all. So we get, we get halfway down the row to our parking location. I think we had to go all the way down to the end because again, uh, we were kind of the only ones flying. And, and finally the examiner broke the silence and, and he says, all right, so here's what's going to happen. Once, uh, once we park, uh, I'm going to head inside, grab a computer and start doing some paperwork. Uh, you tie down the plane. You passed, by the way. And, and then uh, you come in and find me. I remember almost gasping. I, I, I wanted to stay composed, and so I did. But I just remember it was there I finally, you know, not only had the relief of being on the ground, but there was that satisfaction feeling where I was like, oh my gosh, I did it. Holy smokes. I'm sure a little smile cracked, but I was, it, it was just this really strange feeling where I didn't know what to think because I thought I did so poorly making all these little mistakes and how he, the examiner, kind of made me feel like I wasn't competent and that he was disappointed in some of my decision making and my planning. And so it was just this very strange feeling. Uh, and I, I remember when he did get out of the plane after we shut down, he got out of the plane. Once he was out of sight and out of earshot, I, when I was tying down the plane, I think I, I gave out a big yelping yes to myself in, in my excitement uh, because I, I couldn't believe it. I, I was now a commercial pilot. I mean, this was such a stressful flight and I didn't feel good about myself at all up until that moment you know all leading up to that it was just every little point that he had to kind of jab at me and tell me I was doing something wrong it just it brought me down it really brought me down and it was it was it was very tough to continue but I did and because I did you know that's that's what led to me passing and I thinking back and, and answering the question of why did I pass if I thought that I had failed and I, I think what really boiled it down was was my abilities, my abilities to, to remain safe and operate the aircraft with authority and make sound decisions. And now granted, I, I made a few, quite a few mistakes here and there, but at the end of the flight, I didn't make any mistakes that, that led to jeopardizing the safety of the flight. I mean, I, I got through the maneuvers, I messed up on a couple things here and there, like the radio calls and the fuel planning, um, but, but I performed under extreme pressure with terrible weather, and I did all of that safely. And at the end of the day, that's the main thing that examiners and Czech airmen are looking for, is that can you operate this aircraft safely, and can you make sound decisions? If yes, then here's your certificate, and that's what worked out for me in the end. 
so yeah, the, the commercial check ride with the, the DE, the designated examiner, that was that was the toughest check ride I, I have had to date. And and I guess it might surprise people that you know, I'll say that my airline check rides were easier. Um, but it, those those are a little bit different too. That's a different feeling. It's it's a it's a crew environment, so it's just a different type of training. Um, but and that's something I can dive into in another episode. And in, in fact, I mean, there's an idea. I'll, I'll write an episode and talk about my airline training to to give you an idea of, of how difficult it is. You know, going through all, all those steps, and then I can make a, a proper comparison and, and tell that to you to you guys, and, and so you can get an idea the difference in training between primary flight training and, and then airline training uh, because they're they're both very different animals. And each have their difficult moments, but of course they also have tremendous rewards upon completion. And speaking of rewards, I mean that that you know getting through that toughest check ride because it did feel like it was the toughest check ride. It probably felt like the most rewarding check ride to get through it because it was that tough. So anyway, that wraps up this week's episode of Cleared for Takeoff. Thank you so much for tuning in. Once I get onto my next flight, I'm off to spend some time in the Caribbean, but I'll still be back next week for the next episode. And until then, as always, fly safe.